0: In Judges 13, will you open your Bibles, please, to Judges 13? Verse one. In a shocking turn of events, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years, there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had borne no children. 40 years, this is now gonna be the longest oppression in the cycle of the judges, at least that we're told. We've had others that lasted up to 20 years, but for 40 long years, Israel will sit under the oppressive regime of the Philistines we learn a lot, in fact, in these first couple of verses. We learn Zorah, this takes place in Zora. this man is of Zora, of the family of the Danites. So he's of the tribe of Dan, but he lives in the city of Zorah. Zorah is located in what's called the lowlands, literally the, Shephel, the Shephelah of Israel. The lowlands between the hill country of Judah to the east and the Mediterranean coastland to the west. And if you plot that on a map today, this is the region of Tel Aviv. So from Tel Aviv going down to Yafo or, or Jaffa and, and then on down to Ashdod, that strip of the Mediterranean on the Israeli, Israelite coastline, that's what we're talking about here. Zorah was located right there. As we begin the last cycle of the Shoftim, which is judges or what we've been calling, again, the guardians of the unruly, we meet the Philistines. I mean, they emerge now as the primary thorn in the side of Israel, and they will be that thorn for the next several centuries. It's gonna be a nonstop problem from these Philistines until finally we get to David. More on that in just a moment. I was sitting in the kitchen having my morning cup of tea. My boys were sitting at the table with Cheryl, and she was leading them through a world history test for their online studies. Um they, they do online through Liberty, on, online, Liberty University Online Academy. And, and it's really good. It's, it's been a very good school and it's worked really well for our family. But doing this world history test, I'm listening as I'm, again, sipping my tea to the questions and they're answering the questions. And they came to one question and I found it very interesting. The question was, what was the land of Israel called before Israel came into the land? Anyone want to venture a guess? It was called Canaan, now let's be clear on this. Okay, so I I heard some people say Palestine, listen to me. It was not called Palestine before Israel came in. That was the answer given on the world history test. That was the correct answer, quote unquote. That is the wrong answer. And the reason it's the wrong answer, and and I'm kind of reacting right now like I did, this was Monday morning. And Cheryl said, well, the answer says Palestine. And I said, well, the answer is wrong. It's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. And and I have it on my to-do list to call the school and say, fix your test. And my my sons were going, dad, what's the big deal? And I'm like, it's a big deal. Why is it a big deal? The earliest known name of the land historically was Canaan. Before that, there were just, you know, various tribes, whatever, but it was called the land of Canaan. And then it became the land of Israel, and then it split and became Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and then it became Judea and Samaria. It wasn't called Palestine. Note this, it was not called Palestine until 136 A.D. 136 A.D., do you remember what happened in 70 A.D.? Jerusalem fell. The temple was burned to the ground, yes. And by 135, there was a final revolt called the Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, led by a guy named Bar Kokhba. And in this revolt, the the Emperor Hadrian of Rome finally said, I've had it with the Jews. And he established incredible, uh, well, he kicked all the Jews out of the land except for the old and the infirm. He set a rule that said, if any two Jews met on the street of Jerusalem and had conversation, they could be executed. He raised Israel to the ground, I mean, I mean uh, Jerusalem, flattened it, wiped it out. He renamed Jerusalem and rebuilt on top of the, of the rubble. He, he renamed it Alia Capitolina after his own family name. And Hadrian renamed the land Palestina. The Palestina in the Latin well, the Latin doesn't have a ph sound, a ph. It's p P-H, Palestine, Philistine. He renamed it Philistine Country. And it was an insult to the Jewish people. That was the whole that's where Palestine came from, as an insult by the Emperor of Rome against those unruly Jews who had revolted once again in 135, 136 AD. Then it was Palestine. And it was Palestine then, and the reason why that name sticks in so many of our our brains is it remained Palestine for over 1,800 years until 1948 when Israel announced its independence again. That is so important to understand. The problem with naming the land Palestine before it was named Israel is it lends false geopolitical credence to the Israeli-Arab conflict that rages even to this day. You realize that it was uh, Palestinians who who now claim to be the rightful heirs of the land by ancient living, by by ancient uh, residency. Today's Palestinian Authority, not necessarily the Palestinian people, although they have been lied to over and over and over, but the Palestinian Authority says we were The ancient Philistines. We were here before the Israelites. Well, what's the historical truth? Historical truth is the Philistines were originally an Aegean people. That is, from the Aegean Sea region. In fact, the Bible even mentions, Genesis chapter 10, verse 14, the Pathrusim, the Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines and the Kaftorim. Kaftor is the name of an island, you would know it as Crete. Crete and Cyprus, the, 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 the Philistines came from Crete and Cyprus. They were maritime people, they sailed across the Aegean, across the Mediterranean, and they settled in the region that five cities of the Philistines, some still name that today, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and and Gath. And those are the five city-states of the Philistines. It's the Gaza Strip today. That was where they landed, that's where they resided. The Philistines were ultimately subjugated by David in the 10th century BC. So all the way from tonight's study with with, uh, the next guardian, we see this problem of the Philistines and it would run all the way up to David. Well, David finally shut them down. Now, even after David, there would still be a problem. There would still cause issues until the seventh century BC. So 836 years before the land was called Palestina by the Romans, 836 years before that, in, seven, in the seventh century BC, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon came along and wiped out the Philistines. There is no historical record of Philistines existing after the 7th century BC. Gone as a people group. Completely wiped out, taken off into captivity, whatever you want to say. Again, the problem with misnaming the land Palestine, saying, well, it was Palestine, and then it was Israel, and then it was Palestine again. No, it it, it wasn't. It it gives credence to a lie that didn't even come up until the mid-1960s. You may recall Yasser, that's my baby, Arafat. He propagated the lie. He began to state as a political tool, we are the ancient Philistines. Now understand, before he said that, actually before Israel became a nation in 1948, the land was called Palestine. It had been for 1,800 years, right, since Rome named it Palestina, slapping the Jews in the face, Palestina, Philistine country, Well, it had been called Palestine all the way until that point, which means prior to 1948, so if you just go back a decade, 1938, 1928, there were Palestinian Jews and there were Palestinian Arabs. There were not Palestinians and Jews. If you lived there, you were a Palestinian because the region was called Palestinian, whether you were a Jew or an Arab. This is on the historical record. And then in 1948, Israel declared independence and Suddenly in the 1960s, Yasser Arafat says, No, 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 we are the Palestinians. We are the Philistines. Well, the Philistines were from the region of Greece. They were European. They didn't even look like the Arabs of the land. The Philistines looked different. They were taller. They were whiter. They were European in background and in history. The Philistines were wiped out and did not exist. Here's the point of all this, repeat a lie long enough and eventually people believe it. Just keep saying it over and over and over because lies tend to wear us down. Now this is pertinent to where we're going tonight. We tend to get tired, wickedness, Evil, immorality, it just presses on and on and on until finally we just say, okay, enough, just don't bring it into my house. It's fine. Live and let live. Coexist. It's okay. I don't like it, but, and ultimately people get tired of standing for the truth. And that is where we begin tonight. Israel, in this, now we're the seventh cycle through these 400 years, we're in the last cycle of this nauseating carousel that we talked about of, of this mess going on during the days of the judges. Israel is under tedious oppression for the seventh time, but there's something very different when we pick it up in chapter 13, something very different this time. They don't cry out. They don't repent. Nobody confesses anything. They don't say, yes, Lord, this sin, our sin led us into this oppression. In fact, the way we find Israel, and I'll show you this as we go through, we find Israel comfortably complacent under Philistine tyranny. The Philistines are in charge. Okay, well, all right. I guess that's just the way it has to be. Israel has grown accustomed to oppression. Some of you remember that old My Fair Lady song, I've grown accustomed to her face. It sort of makes the day begin. Well, this is now, I've grown accustomed to the Philistines. They sort of make the day begin. They don't care. The Philistines are in charge. The Philistines are oppressing Israel, but Israel, the people, the Jewish people, the Hebrews at this point, coexist with the Philistines. They are content with the status quo. It's easier that way. Where do you get this stuff, Rick? Chapter 15, verse 11. Actually, go back to verse nine and just, just a real quick, we'll, we'll come back to the story uh, perhaps next week. But for now, the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, Judges 15, verse nine, and spread out in Lehi and the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson in order to do, him, do to him as he did to us. Well, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and they said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? Why are you rocking the boat? 3,000 men of Israel, rather than standing up to the Philistines, went down to Samson and said, cut it out, man. Don't you know they're in charge? It's only taken 400 years from God saying this land is your land to the Jewish people saying, or the Israelites saying, this land is the Philistines' land. And they just want to leave it Alone. Now we'll find out what it is that, that this guardian did, but it's a sad state when people become comfortable being controlled. It concerns me in America because we're seeing the same application of life, the same control, the same removal, removal of rights, removal of freedom that everybody's just kind of giving up because ah, it's easier this way. It's more comfortable this way. And it makes us complacent. Thankfully, there is a God in the heavens whose will and purposes never cave into culture. God never caves to culture. He always maintains his will, he maintains his purpose, and he will see it through. Isaiah 46, verse nine, remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is the Lord. And he has a will and it is in play to this day, just as it was, even in the times when the Philistines were oppressing Israel and it looks like Israel's just done fighting. Okay, it's the way it is. We'll just hang out and let them be in charge. Well, behind the scenes, the Lord is saying, nope. Again, no one's confessed, no one's repented, and no one is crying out to the Lord, but he is yet at work. He is a gracious God. I think it might be wise for us to take even that word and slow it down a bit. Gracious. He is grace-shush. Grace-shush. His grace, even when we are shushed by the enemy, His grace applies. This is Israel, silent and surrendered, but God is moving. Davis writes, I love this, he says, that's grace. Grace greater than all our sin, than all our stupidity, than all our density. No offense, but I didn't write it, he did. For if Yahweh's help were given only when we prayed for it, only when we asked for it, only when we had enough sense to seek after it what paupers and orphans we would be. And here's Israel. They're not asking for help, but God's gonna give it because he is a God of grace. Even when they are shust, <laughs> he is gracious. And just like Israel, empty and oppressed, now what's gonna happen is the angel of the Lord shows up at the home of a barren woman, verse three. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, this is now the wife of Manoah, remember, in that city of Zorah, in the region of the Danites. So Dan, can I tell you to keep that in mind? Maybe I'll come back to that. But, but, but keep in mind that this is in the city of Dan in the Tel Aviv area, okay? Just, just keep that in the back of your head. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold now, you are barren and have borne no children. That's gotta sting a bit, you know. He he said that, He, he raised the issue. Behold, you're barren and without children. Well, she knows this, and yet he goes on, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Three great statements in one little sentence. You will conceive, give birth to a son. In the midst of this woman's barrenness, Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, he repeats. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. No one's asking God for grace, but he's given it. He's giving it anyway. Perhaps you're sitting here tonight because, well, you didn't ask God for grace, but he extended it to you. And your ears were opened. And in a moment, you realized how desperately you needed the grace he offered. And that is happening here. Even for Israel, God extends his hand of grace. Now, by now, this is a very familiar motif in the Bible that is a barren woman that God comes to and says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open your womb, you're gonna have a child. I'm gonna make this work for you. We saw that with Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, now Manoah's wife, so she's the fourth in the Hebrew scriptures. We will soon meet the fifth, Hannah, who is a barren woman, but will give birth to Samuel by the will of the Lord, and finally, you'll see it again in the Gospel of Luke, the woman named Elizabeth, who gives birth to John the Baptist. Over and over and over, in each woman's case, God fills the empty space. In each case, he fills the empty space. This is what he does. We have emptiness in our lives without the filling that can only come from the Lord. And unless we know the Lord, unless we're following the Lord, that emptiness is always there, always remains. But God, more than than giving children, God gives his son and fills the emptiness of our lives. Praise the Lord, again, that's grace. Now, this next guardian we're gonna meet here eventually would not exist. Indeed, Israel itself would not exist if not for divine intervention. You ever think about that? If God had not intervened and brought Isaac into the world, there would be no Israel. If God had not intervened to give this woman the ability to give birth There would be no guardian in this story that we're about to read. God supernaturally intervenes because, again, as we've been saying a lot recently, ain't gonna work if it's not supernatural. God reaches into history and makes a change. Now, it's interesting that the old rabbis, um, their take on this story is that the wife of Manoah must have been a very special woman. She must have been righteous for God to come to her like this and to to choose her like this. She must have had some degree of holiness and she earned the visit by her virtue. I suggest she earned the, she did not earn anything that the visit was by the Lord's virtue. God came to her because it's who he is not because of what she's done. I've given this example before. We talked about this this morning, that oftentimes when we pray, we'll have a tendency to pray for someone. Uh, if someone needs healing, if someone's sick, we'll say to the Lord, oh, the Lord, Lord, this is your servant, and, and he's so faithful, or, or she is such a godly woman, won't you look down and heal her? And rather, we ought to be appealing to his faithfulness and his holiness, not ours. It's never because you were Worthy of it that God moves, it's because He is a God of grace and mercy. He moves because of who He is, not because of who we are. And so He comes to this woman, and we, we get nothing specifically, at least before the angel of the Lord comes to her, to say that she was anything but just a barren, anonymous woman. But God comes to her anyway, her anyway and He fills the void of a barren life. In John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, filling the void of an empty life. Jesus said in John 14, 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you, filling the void of an empty life. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him, again, filling the void of an empty life. That's what Jesus wants to do. It struck me, Jake, while you were talking during communion about the idea that he wants us to seek him. Do you understand why he wants us to seek him? Because if he appeared to us as he is, as he is going to reveal himself in a minute to Manoah and his wife, we would not be able to do anything but fall down and worship. So he says, I'd like you to come seek me so that we have a choice in the matter. Because again, if Jesus showed up here tonight in all his glory, all choice would go right out the window. We could not help but to worship him as he is but he wants relationship, so he says, come seek me, come get to know me, and I will fill you up, and I will change your life, and I will walk with you, and then then you're gonna see who I am. Now, the Lord calls this son, as he speaks to the wife of Manoah, he calls him to be a Nazarite. This is interesting to me. A Nazarite from birth, The Nazarite vow is a vow of devotion. Remember we talked about vows of devotion, vows of of consummation on Sunday, and a vow of devotion is one by choice. You decide, I want to be a Nazarite. And so for a season, you don't get a haircut, you stay away from dead things, and and, and you don't drink wine. And you devote that season to the Lord. We think Paul was under a Nazarite vow, when he shows up back in Jerusalem and he, he hadn't had his hair cut and he needed to fulfill the rites of the Nazarite vow, what you do is cut your hair and your hair would actually be part of the offering at the, offer, at the altar of a of, of burnt offering. And the, and the vow would then be concluded. So there were many people throughout the scriptures who made the Nazarite vow, this man, this child, this son born is born into it. So he's not making, it's not a vow of devotion, he's called to this vow. He's born to this vow. And again, what is the vow? Listen to Numbers chapter six, describe it. Numbers chapter six, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, so this could be male or female, a vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no wine vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. So raisins are right out. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grape vine from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall not, or he shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. Now, at this point in my life, if I took a Nazarite vow, it would make no difference because my hair stopped growing. It just doesn't do anything. It just sits there. Sometimes it'll grow out my ear. That's always nice. All the days of his separation, verse six, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, when they die because of his separation to God. That's on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now, we studied that back in Numbers, the Nazarite vow. In fact, it's talked about uh, multiple times in Torah. No strong drink, no wine, no grapes, not even the peel of a grape, the, the skin, the seed, at all. Why? Well, wine in the scripture indicates joy and cheer. Oh, so the Nazarite is to be joyless and cheerless? No, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the idea was for the Nazarite to experience life and joy without any substance, without any other help, other than his or her devotion to the Lord. That's where your joy is gonna come from. And during this time of devotion, the Nazarite would find joy in the Lord, perhaps wouldn't even ever go back to drinking wine because they wouldn't need to. Hey, I'm cheery with, with Jesus. I'm joyful in the Lord. No razor on the head. What's that about? Well, that indicated maybe the opposite of what you might think. It indicated Humility. Humility. We won't see this with this next guardian, but still, it indicated humility. Long hair wasn't cool or stylish or in vogue back in the day. No, long hair was a a picture of poverty and it was self-effacing. So for a man to grow his hair long, well, you can read about it in 1 Corinthians 11, a whole interesting cultural deal where Paul is talking to the church at Corinth and about, about men and their hair and women and their hair, that women are given their hair for a covering, but for a man, he is not to, to wear long hair. It's not to cover his head that way. And that goes all the way back to this, this idea that the long hair was, well, it was humility to not be able to style it and cut it and have it look nice. So no wine, no razor to the head, and no contact with dead things. Why? Because death is the result of sin. Death is the picture of being unclean, and to make this vow is to be set apart and devoted to the Lord, which means to be clean all the days of the vow. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two 29, you're mistaken not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he said in verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Have you not heard that? He says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, the God of the living. So the Nazarite vow, the angel of the Lord comes to this wife of Manoah and says, you're gonna give birth to a son and he will be a Nazarite from birth upward. And we'll see how that plays out with this guardian. Verse six. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall drink, not uh, drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And then Manoah, well, Manoah, he gets in on the act. He entreated the Lord and said, O oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. What is she doing? What is the woman doing if your Bible reads the same as my Bible, and I hope it does, she's sitting in the field. That's kind of weird. I mean, you would think it would say at this point, she was working in the field. She was gleaning the harvest in the field. She was out there helping her husband in the field. She's sitting in the field. Now, I don't know if you ever caught this before, but if you've read this story of Manoah and his wife and and of, of the birth of this guardian, of this boy, I've always assumed that she was back home and the husband was at work and the angel of God came to her at the house and she went, oh, and ran out to get her husband and bring him home. She's not home. She's sitting in the field. This barren, anonymous woman is sitting in the field. No wonder the angel of the Lord comes to her. Manoah prayed. Manoah entreated the Lord. The man, the husband, said, oh, Lord, send back to us so we can know what to do. And the Lord didn't appear to him. He appeared to her. Any of you husbands hate when that happens? You know I mean? Jake can attest to this. I do the praying, and he shows up to my wife. <laughs> it does sound like Jake. Well, he said that this morning, so you're right on it, Jason. <laughs> how, how? Look at what's happening here. I mean, this is just so... It's so important and it's so simple. And by the way, and I I said this also to our staff this morning, sometimes we're looking so hard for the in-depth Greek word and the Hebrew and the the, ooh, the profound that we miss the simplicity and the beauty of it. It is so simple, but it is so powerful that she is sitting in the field. What's she doing? Waiting. She's waiting for the Lord's response. What's Manoah doing? I have no idea. He prayed, but he's off somewhere else. And that is more like me. Oh, I'll pray the prayer, but then I get gotta get back to work, gotta get busy, gotta keep rolling, gotta keep moving in this world, got stuff to do. You know, the Lord will answer me. I prayed, he'll answer me. When I, am I waiting for the answer? We can so quickly entreat and get back to work, and yet here she is just sitting in the field. You know who it reminds me of. You do know. The story's told in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. The wife of Manoah is sitting in a field. Mary is seated at the Lord's feet. Manoah entreated the Lord. Martha welcomed the Lord into their house. So, you wouldn't have the Mary situation or the wife of Manoah situation if you didn't have Martha and the husband Manoah. Someone's gotta welcome the Lord. And the husband called out and treated, welcomed the Lord and Martha welcome the Lord. I love Martha, by the way. I love, I marry Martha. My wife is Martha. She is, she's a servant to the core. She's nonstop. She's 24-7. That's And we need Marthas. This church would implode without the Marthas. Martha invites the Lord. Martha welcomes the Lord. Manoah entreats the Lord, calls out to the Lord, but his wife is sitting there waiting, and Mary is seated at his feet. And I think what is so easily missed in our Christian walk is we make the entreaty, but we don't wait for the answer. And I'm not talking about waiting a span of time. I'm talking about the attitude of the heart that says, I prayed for this, and now Lord, I am expectantly waiting for you. I'm listening for you to respond. I'm looking for your answer. And I will obey whatever that answer is. Verse 10. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. And then Manoah arose, no doubt saying, why didn't he appear to me? And followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. I am. Now, he could answer, I am. It's just Ani in the Hebrew. Ani. It's the first person, personal pronoun. Are you the one? And that's what you would answer, I am. And yet, it has so much meaning to it. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Yahweh has sent me to you. Yahweh is I am, it's ayeheh, or Yahweh, and it's that tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H. But listen, Yahweh is the imperfect verb changed into a noun. So you've got the first person, personal pronoun that you can change into a verb form that is changed in the case of Yahweh into the noun form of Yahweh, but it comes from ani, it's the same root. And when it's changed into the imperfect verb, what, what it becomes then is I was, I am, I will be. So ani is I am. Yahweh is I was, I am, I will be. Because the verb, the, the the word is imperfect. So it, it is not attached to time. It is unlimited by time, unlimited by place, unlimited by space, unlimited by dimension. I was, I am, I will be. That's God. And that's Yahweh. But it is embedded, I believe, in this response: the I am, are you the man? I am, and again, we've talked about the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, and who this is. We will have even further proof by the end of this chapter, as to who the Malach Yahweh truly is, I have said over and over, this is Jesus pre-incarnate. And I have come to believe over the last 20 years of studying through the scriptures. I I used to play it a little more cautiously. You know, Uh, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord in the scriptures might be a Christophany, might be Jesus incarnate. Melchizedek perhaps could be. I would say it like that 20 years ago. Nowadays, not nah, it's him. I am absolutely sure of it, that every time you see that phrase, Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures, that's Jesus before Christ. Jesus before he came in flesh to dwell among us. Jesus as the physical representation of the invisible God. Jesus who said in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am, I am. I am. So Manoah said in verse 12, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? Didn't God already say that? What he was going to do, he was gonna be a Nazarite. Yeah, but but what's he supposed to do? This is such a dad thing. What's his job? I wanna know what he's gonna do for a living, right? (laughs) And so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, listen, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not drink anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor, let, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. You know what's interesting? The Nazarite vow of the, of the guardian about to be born starts with mama. She has to live like a Nazarite through this pregnancy. She has to be the Nazirite who gives birth to the Nazirite. And remember, in in number six, when a man or a woman chooses to devote themselves to the Lord. So the Nazirite vow is not a male vow. It is male or female. It's anyone who wants to enter into that time of devotion. Starts with mama. One of the disturbing statistics from the recent Pew Research poll on religion, I actually quoted from a couple of weeks back, is this talking about religion in the home, only 35% say that it is extremely or very important that their children share their religious beliefs. Let me just translate that. One-third of Christian parents in America say it's important to pass along their faith to their kids. One-third you would think it would be at least half, at least 75, 85. Shouldn't the majority of us as followers of Jesus want our children to be followers of Jesus? Shouldn't the majority of us say that is incredibly important? But the problem is you can't teach what you don't know. You can't pass along what does not belong in your heart. And unless we are, and I'm preaching to the choir tonight, I'm gonna do it a lot. Unless we are passionate followers of Jesus, why would we expect our kids to be? You want your son to be a Nazirite? You be a Nazirite, mama. You want your children to follow Jesus? You follow Jesus, dad. It's gotta start with mom and dad first, and we pass along to our children what we know. How many times have you asked the Lord, by the way, to answer something he already has? thing is here, you know, Manoah says, what shall be the boy's mode of life? What shall be his vocation? I love that the angel of the Lord gives no new information. I already told you that. Do what I told you. And then he repeats it. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, drink wine or strong drink, nor let any unclean thing, eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. If we don't know his word, we won't even know what to ask. Which is Manoah's problem. We don't know what to ask if we don't know his word, because if we don't know his word, we don't know what he's already told us. You see what I'm getting at? Let me put it very simply let us pay attention to all that he has said, let us observe all that he has commanded, and most of our questions will be answered. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So when people are saying, I don't know the will of God for my life, I don't know what God wants me to do, I don't understand what God thinks about this situation or that situation, Peter says, we already have it everything leading to life and godliness. He's given it to you. You wanna be more certain of God's will for your life? It comes through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more I know him and the more I am in his word and the more I am led by his spirit, the less I have to ask questions because he's already given the answers. Let her obey all that I've commanded. Let her Observe, pay attention to what I have said. Jesus put it this way, very simply, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How can I keep his commandments if I don't know them? But again, I remind you, he's already given them. Verse 15, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please, let let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to Yahweh. For for Manoah did not know that he was the Malach Yahweh. He didn't know who this was. He still wasn't getting it, wasn't putting it all together. And then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come to pass we may honor you, I love this, but the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? It's wonderful, Peli, not the soccer player. Peli, P-E-L-I, and literally it translates this word wonderful, it's something beyond human ability. It is something too difficult for us. Why do you ask, you could say, why do you ask me my name? It's too hard for you. But it's not a pronunciation issue here. My name is wonderful. My name is wonderful, beyond human ability. Let me read you something here. This is Psalm 139. Familiar to many of you, but just listen to it for a moment. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Let me begin again. Oh, Yahweh, oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Let me just ask you this. Do you know anybody who knows you that well? Anybody? Husbands, does your wife know you that well? Well, she knows me pretty well. I didn't say pretty well. Does she know you that well? Wives, can you say your husband knows you that well? Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. Now, Cheryl can make a good guess, but she doesn't always get that right. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Same word. Here, it's peliyah, but it's from peli. It's that same root word, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What knowledge? The knowledge of Yahweh. But then it continues down in verse 13 of Psalm 139. You form my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, same word. This is a wonderful that is way beyond human capacity, human capability, too difficult for us. Wonderful, again, the word, are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. We would say the thoughts of God are wonderful. They are beyond us. They are too difficult for us to discern all the thoughts of God, all that that he considers wonderful. Why do you ask ask me my name? It's it's wonderful. And it is the exact name I've told you before, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful. Wonderful. This is Jesus. This is the Malach Yahweh, Jesus. And and, and he says here, I won't eat your food, but you can offer it to Yahweh. You can offer it up. Hint, hint. Watch how the offering is accepted, verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and he offered it on the rock to the Lord and he performed wonders, same word, variation of that same word. He performed wonders. He did a wonderful thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. what did he do? Verse 20, it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the malach Yahweh ascended in the flame of the altar. <laughs> wow, when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. You know why? Because when you see God, that's what you do. And as I said earlier, if Jesus were to show up here and now in his glorified state, as he did before John in Revelation chapter one, we would fall flat on our faces in immediate worship. We would be compelled to do so. Even the non-believer among us would fall down on his or her face and worship the Lord. You cannot help but do so. And that is exactly what Manoah and his wife do. They fall on their faces to the ground. The word wonders Is the verb form of the adjective name wonderful? And what he does is wonderful. He ascends in fire of the accepted grain and burnt offerings. He receives the offering and he goes up. The malach Yahweh stands in the place of the one who is worshiped as Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, because we don't know her name, fall down worshiping him. And then listen to what Manoah says. Verse 22 In verse 21, the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again, and then Manoah knew that he was the Malach, Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh, and Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die, for we have seen God. He gets it. He understands. This is the deal. We're dead. But his wife said to him, if Yahweh had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. This is a godly woman. She's got some spiritual insight and understanding. He's like, that's it, we're dead. And she's like, we would already be dead, honey. <laughs> Exodus thirty-three twenty: you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So yes, if we were to see God tonight in all his glory, we would die. First Timothy 1, 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He's the king invisible, how can we see him? 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen, Paul writes. This is what I would call the divine conundrum. You can't see God, but God wants to be seen. You can't approach God, but God wants us to approach him. What do you do? John 1, 17. No one has seen God at any time the only begotten god who is in the bosom of the father he has explained him actually i think that's john 1.18, but it's right there no one has seen god you haven't seen god john writes thinking 60 years after he had walked with jesus no one has seen god but but the only begotten god who is in the bosom of the father he has explained him but the word explained isn't just he told us about him explained ex- ex- exegomai he has exegeted him An exegesis of a passage of scripture is to take it apart to understand its complete meaning. And that's what Jesus did to show us God. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's Jesus. So when Manoah sees the Malach Yahweh ascending in the flame and says we have seen God, he was right. They had. In that Christophany. And of course then John writes in 1 John four twelve: no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us so that there is even yet now during the church age in the absence of Jesus that is in the flesh, physically where we can see him, His spirit, of course, is with us, but in that absence of Jesus, as he's preparing a place for us, the world can yet see Jesus in us. The invisible God can become visible in this world if we love one another and he abides in us. It's beautiful. Yahweh cracked the conundrum. (laughs) Yahweh made a way for the invisible to become visible and for the unapproachable to be approached with confidence and boldness at his throne of grace. He makes himself visible in Jesus. Well, verse 24, then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. Finally, I can say the name. (laughs) And I've been avoiding it because if we were just reading the story, we wouldn't even know who this kid's name was, who he was gonna be, who this Nazarite was who is supposed to be raised up to begin the salvation of Israel. We don't know who this guy is. Finally verse 24, she named him Samson and the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. Little Samson, Shimshon is his name, Shimshon, which means sunshine. His name is Sunny. Sunny boy. Why did it take so long to get a name? Out of this guardian, why did we just spend an entire chapter leading up to the naming of this final guardian? Because it's not about the final guardian. Because none of this book is about the judges. It's about Jesus. This is about the Lord. The Lord is the point. The Lord is the focus. It's all about him It's a story of the salvation of the Lord and you've got to remember that as we go through it. Otherwise, you're gonna get messed up because the story of Samson, Sonny Boy, is a messed up story. We've talked about some of the messes in some of the lives of the judges and how they were imperfect people trying to guard over an unruly lot. And yet, verse five tells us, gives us the hint. Go back and look at it. Last part of the verse, he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. It will not be accomplished by Sonny. He just gets the ball rolling. It just begins with him. And the reality is it's gonna take centuries before the Philistines finally are put down. And Samson's deliverance of Israel remains unfinished in his death. His life really is an introduction to the story of saving this unruly really people who are, at this point, content with their oppression. It's just gonna start with Shemshon. Scratch the surface, if you will, of a salvation that is coming down the pike and it will start to really take root in a man after God's own heart, David. And then in the lineage of David all the way down to the greatest salvation that comes through that line. And of course, that is again, Jesus. So we need to take care with Sonny Boy, with Mr. Sunshine, with Samson. Davis says he is such a rollicking, entertaining, break the mold fellow that we may become preoccupied with him. Don't do it. Don't be excited by Samson. I was, as a kid, I loved it. I've told you we had a big Bible picture book, big white leather Bible picture book, and people used to have those in their homes, should still, but we used to sit in our living room on this little stand, my parents got it sometime right after they were married. And I remember as a kid, this was before the days of, of phones and video games, and you know, this is when boredom was actually healthy, and we did this all the time. And I would get on the floor, four, five, six years old, and I would flip through the pages, and there were these huge full-page pictures, paintings of Bible scenes. You know, I think I mentioned this when we were talking about the flood. There's a picture of the flood that always really upset me. I mean, I remember having bad dreams about that picture of the flood. Well, the picture of Samson, you can imagine. It's at the very end of his life. Muscles rippling, sweat dripping down his face, a bandage around his blinded eyes, but he is pushing apart the two pillars and the ceiling is about to come down on the Philistines. (laughs) It's awesome. I remember playing Samson as a kid. You know, my little stick arms, but oh, you know. My brother and I would get those, you know, those cardboard tubes from wrapping paper and we'd put them on either side. Ah! Awesome. Shimshon. Don't let your focus be Mr. Sunshine. Don't let (laughs) Mr. Sunshine eclipse the real story, which is about the son of God, who is our salvation, and of whom this is only a picture pointing in that direction. Verse 25, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtil. Now, I, I told you earlier, remember that this happens in, Zorah of Dan, a family of the Danites. So this was Dan's allotment, and here it's given very specifically Mahanedan, that's Camp Dan. This happened at Camp Dan between Zora and Eshterol, which is the Mediterranean coast, again, west of Judah, Tel Aviv region today. But when we visit Israel, we go on the very first day of touring up to Tel, or second day of touring, we go up to Tel Dan in the Far north, from Tel Dan, you can look out from an ancient altar that was an altar they've discovered to one of the two golden calves that Jeroboam set up. From that place where that altar is, you can look just off in the distance and see Lebanon. That's how far north this is. And it's called Tel Dan. Why? Well, if you look in your Bibles, you might find a city of Dan all the way up in the north. What's Dan doing up in the north when their allotment is down here by Tel Aviv? I'll tell you what when we get there in just a couple of chapters. But it's very interesting, and you gotta keep that in mind, that Dan, this is Dan. This is where Dan is supposed to be. But Dan's not gonna be happy with this. Verse 25 makes something absolutely clear, that the secret of Samson's strength is not his hair and it's not his big bulging muscles. And it's not that he's Fabio, you know, I am Fabio. Those of you who remember Fabio in the 80s, I don't know, who would that be, Chris Hemsworth today? Thor, I'm Mighty Thor. You ever heard about that? Mighty Thor was flying through the heavens, and he would call out, I am Mighty Thor, as he rode his steed and he, Threw down thunder and lightning through the heavens. I am mighty Thor, he would cry out. I am mighty Thor. And finally, his horse turned around and said, Why don't you get a faddle, Philly? i mighty Thor. Why don't you get yourself a faddle, Philly? I'm mighty Thor. I'm... <laughs> get a faddle. Wow, it's one of my favorites. My kids roll their eyes almost like y'all did, so that's a thing in my house. So here's Samson, and and the source of his strength, the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, four times. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson more than any any of the other guardians. We will see this happen again and again and again again. And this verse actually sets up the entire difficult life of Samson. I'll explain, but let me real quickly give you two vignettes and we'll finish tonight. And they both come back to back in chapter 14. Follow this through. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Watch how many times Samson sees and once He saw a woman. I drew a little eyeball in the the page of my Bible right next to that. He saw a woman, one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman, second eyeball there. In Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, now therefore, get her for me as a wife. I saw a woman, huh, saw her. Verse one could encapsulate Samson's life. I saw a woman. And you're gonna see this. Samson's been called a he-man with a (laughs) she-weakness. And I like that. Four women, you could say, define the life of Samson, beginning with his mother, and they mark the very arc of his life, and they are four 'er ne'er-do-well women, I'll just put it that way, and Samson himself is a bad judge of character and a man who is driven by lust. This is by far the most lusty of the guardians. This guy sees and he wants, and he will one, two, three, four times in the first half of this chapter, he sees and he wants. He saw a woman of the Philistines, tells his mom and dad, I saw her, I won her. Verse three, then his father and his mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she looks good to me. It's all about the eyes. Literally that phrase, she looks good to me, she's right in my eyes. She's right in my eyes. John in 1 John chapter two said, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. I love how David said, I will put no worthless thing before my eyes. And yet it's all about the eyes for Samson. By the way, there's a little behind the scenes director's commentary stuck right here in verse four. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. This is kind of like, wait, what? Samson says, gotta get a woman. I found me a woman. She looks good to me. And his parents are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to send him back. Deuteronomy chapter seven, you gotta marry within Israel. That's in Torah, that's part of the law. Don't marry an uncircumcised Philistine. Come on, Samson, do the right thing. And the writer tells us, by the way, this was God's plan all along. I suggest to you that God chose Samson partially because he knew this guy was a lust-filled man. He knew what Samson would do. And it fit the purpose at the time. This is, this is difficult. On the surface we see Samson who lusted deeply, but Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God is behind this. Now, two things to note on this to understand that verse. First off, God has already said how he felt about such marriages. He's already made it clear. Remember what the angel said to Manoah and his wife? Let the woman pay attention to all I said, Let her observe all that I commanded. I already said it. So when people get confused about what the Lord's doing, understand he makes it very clear what his intentions are. What is holiness? What is righteousness? What is good and true and just and pure? He's already told us that. So you need to factor that in. That's the deal here. We know how he feels. Deuteronomy chapter seven, I won't read it right now, but the first four verses talk about I want you to stay within the Israelites and I do not want you to marry outside because if you marry outside, then you're gonna just fall prey to all of their gods. So God said, don't do that. But here we find that Samson's desire to break Torah fits God's purposes very nicely. How do we make sense of that? And I'll just put it this way. There are some things God allows but does not approve. He allows them but he doesn't approve of them. Just because he allows allows it doesn't mean he's okay with it. Well, here's an example. 2 Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is what God does not approve. He does not approve people perishing. Will people perish? He allows it. Doesn't approve it. It's not what he wants, not his desire, but he allows it. He allows it for the sake of our free will. But he has determined that his will be done. Remember, my purpose will be established, Isaiah 46. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He's going to do what he said he would do. There are things, however, that he allows in terms of our own free will. And there is a divine work going on here regarding the Philistines. God is taking this situation and this man, this lust-filled man, and he's turning the situation against the Philistines. Why? For the salvation of his people. So God's at work and he's got a will. And again, as work told in verse four, it was of the Lord. It fit God's purposes. It was going to go to the salvation of Israel. What will? The lust of this guy. But God doesn't like lust. No, he doesn't. He doesn't approve of it, but he's allowing it because in this case, it is working to his purpose. This is like um, 2 Chronicles 10, 15. Here's another example. The king, this is talking about Rehoboam, did not listen to the people for it was a turn of events from the Lord that the Lord might establish his word, which he spoke through Ahijah the Shelonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So Rehoboam's hard-heartedness following his father, Solomon, his hard heartedness toward the people was part of what God was doing. Fit God's purposes. God allowed it. He didn't approve it. He wasn't pleased with Rehoboam, but it fit the purposes at the time. I don't know how else to, to explain this, but to say this is the difficulty of sovereignty. <laughs> and it will always be a difficulty for you because God is God and we are not. And He is sovereign and yet we have free will. And he has predetermined everything he's going to do, and yet we can choose to be a part of it or not. That's the deal. Everything Samson does, nearly everything Samson does is selfish and lustful. His entire story is marked by lust and self-centeredness. So if you think, ah, this is a mighty guardian of Israel. No, this is a selfish, fleshy man. He's all about the flesh. And yet, he is still God's savior of Israel at this time. God is going to turn Samson's selfishness into the beginning of salvation from the Philistines. By the way, I think Samson will get it at the very end. Oh, verse five. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. Hold it. Wait a minute, he's a Nazirite. What's he doing in a vineyard? He's not even supposed to touch the peel of a grape or a seed or have anything to do with wine whatsoever, and now he's in a vineyard? And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. Now, what we can only assume happened here is as he went down with mom and dad, they got on ahead of him, he trailed behind, maybe he stayed back in the vineyard. Why is he in the vineyard? Again, that's problematic But while he's there in a vineyard, a lion attacks. A lion comes out of nowhere. Do you think, do you think that maybe the Lord allows or even sends lions to attack to drive us out of the vineyard of our sin? That that may be what's going on here? I told you not to drink. I told you to stay away from wine and you're in a vineyard. I mean, you can't get much closer to wine than that. And here comes a lion to drive Samson out. And I understand that the Bible compares Satan to a roaring lion that seeks to devour. Do you think it's possible that sometimes God allows Satan to come roaring in to drive us out of our sin? 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You could say that the, this is the main way out. Thank you. The main way may have teeth and may have claws. Wow. And with the escape, God provides endurance. Verse six. Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Now this is kind of gross, but I just gotta tell you real quickly. What do you mean as one tears a young goat? Well, this was how it could be done. If you didn't have anything to work with and you had a goat and those of you animal lovers, my apologies. I'm not saying I approve it, but I'm going to allow it. (laughs) You could grab a young goat by its hind legs and literally tear it apart. And you could do this because of the way the tendons work and it's soft and and they come apart easily. A young goat would. A lion would not. You could not do this with a lion, and yet Samson does probably grabs a hold of the back legs of the lion and just goes, snap, and pulls the lion apart. Where did this man get such an amazing strength? The spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. You're gonna hear this phrase again. Literally, it is the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him powerfully. We only see this with Samson. You don't see this with the other guardians. Only with Samson do we see this forceful Holy Spirit rush come upon him and he tears this animal apart. And I'm not lying, but wow, this is, this is now death in a vineyard. Strike two, strike two. What are you doing in a vineyard? And now he is touching death, which he's just caused. You are to have nothing to do with dead things if you're a Nazirite. Verse seven, so he went down and talked to the woman. She looked good to Samson. There's another eyeball. And when he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. Go back and check it out. Wait a minute, it's dead. He's a Nazarite. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands. Now, I'm a honey lover, but come on. I have yet to take honey out of a carcass of an animal and think, hmm, a snack. <laughs> he scraped the honey into his hands and he went on, eating as he went. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Yeah, no doubt, it would have grossed him out. But I think there's another reason perhaps he didn't tell them. I think Samson knows his vow is compromised here. And what they don't know won't annoy me. (laughs) If I don't tell mom and dad, they won't get on me about breaking my Nazarite vow. So I, yeah, I found some honey, yeah, mm, eat up. (laughs) No, that's not blood. So, I mean, this is gross. (laughs) Verse 10. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. This is, by the way, Philistine country. And when they saw him, They brought 30 companions to be with him. These 30 companions are not Israelites, they're Philistines. So he's now down there and he's having a feast. The word feast is Miste. Miste isn't, this isn't, when you see the feasts of Israel, this word is not used. This word does not describe the feasts of Israel as given by God. This feast, Miste, is a drinking feast. This is a kegger. This is Samson gathering for a big, drunken brawl. This mistake is a mistake. And his companions are pagans. And 1 Corinthians 15, says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. And stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, Paul says. By the way, that's 1 Corinthians 15. What did he just talked about in 1 Corinthians 11? Does anyone remember what's the big issue in 1 Corinthians 11? Hint, it has to do with communion. And Paul is all up in their face about how they are just they are making a mockery of communion. Their love feast. He says some of you are getting drunk. You're partying down. The rich people are eating all the food. They're not saving anything for the poor people. It's a complete disaster. And now in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he's he's still dealing with this issue of drunkenness. Bad company corrupts good morals. And then immediately says, Be sober minded. Knock off these drinking parties, if you will. And that's the problem here with Shimshon. Mr. Sunshine is having a keger, and they're all gathering around and they're all pagans and he's part of it. Now Samson isn't exactly the sun shining example of moral values at this point as he's trampling the Nazarite lifestyle, verse 12. So then Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find out and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you're unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. Now, what he's thinking is, I got 30 Philistines here, and each one of them can give me a change of clothes, and I'll have a whole new wardrobe. This will be great. Riddle me this. And he says, they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, we know what just happened. They don't but we know about the lion and the tearing apart and the honey and the lion and the scooping out. So we know that's what he's talking about. They have no idea, great riddle. I could see Bobo, Bilbo and, and, and Gollum having this riddle. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. They're like, oh, what, what does it mean, what does it mean? And they're trying to get it and, and he's just laughing. <laughs> 30 changes of clothes, this is, this is great. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, his wife, his Philistine wife, They said to her, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, you only hate me and you do not love me and you've propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, behold, I've not told it to my father or mother. Should Should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted and on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard and she told the riddle to the sons of her people. And this is Samson's downfall. Again and again and again, it's a woman. She looks so good. Proverbs 27:15 <laughs> Says, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. Now, if that offends any of you ladies, all I would say is, well, wait, is that you? <laughs> Proverbs twenty-seven sixteen says, he who, who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. A contentious woman. Well, this is Samson's wife. She's being a contentious woman. She's wearing him down, and women have that power over Samson, as we will see again. Verse 18, so the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Oh, he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Great guy, great guy. His Philistine wife, we could call her his little filly, is now his heifer. The filly is now the heifer. This is, what a great, their marriage is not getting off to a good start. Let's just put it that way. Verse 19, then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. So again, as with the lion, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. And he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend, literally his best man. What a twisted tale here in the scriptures. (laughs) Amazing story. This will roll on into the next problem with the Philistines and the next and the next. But what Samson does in response to this whole riddle situation from these Philistines at this drunken party, wedding feast, so it seems, is go down and kill 30 Philistines, take their clothes, and give it to the 30 guys. That's his solution. But it's of the Lord, because 30 Philistines have now been taken out. And the salvation of Israel is just beginning against the Philistines. This is a disturbing story. I hope you found it to be a little disturbing, a little strange, a little odd, maybe not the the big, awesome Samson man of God picture that we've had before, but this is a, a disturbing story all the way through. It's not disturbing because Sonny is a rollicking playboy, although it's kind of. It's not disturbing because God is accomplishing his will through a lustful man, although that may be a bit unsettling. It's not even disturbing because of the tragic way This whole story ends, and it is tragic. But I wanna leave you with a word tonight, and just a word, because we're gonna come back to it on Sunday. Go back and look again at the very end of chapter 13, which gives us the first time the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson. The rest of the times, he's gonna come mightily upon him. He's gonna rush upon him in this great move of power. Verse 25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zora and Eshtel. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The word stir in the Hebrew, mark, mark this in your Bibles, is pa'am, pa'am, and it means disturb or trouble. The spirit of the Lord began to disturb him. The Spirit of the Lord began to trouble him. This is a disturbing story, start to finish, because the Spirit of the Lord disturbs and troubles the flesh. Samson is a man of flesh. He is a lusty man, and the Holy Spirit is upon him, and that sets up a great conflict that runs throughout the rest of his life. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us that insight especially this Sunday, give us time to ponder and think through these things and prepare our hearts to receive from you. But may we, Lord, be either comforted, led, helped, strengthened by your spirit, or, Lord, I pray we would be disturbed and troubled by your spirit. Either way, my prayer is that your spirit would intervene in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.